Amen. You can have a seat. Thank you for being here. If you want to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 19. It is Palm Sunday today. And if you remember the last few weeks, we've been walking through the Psalms of Ascents. That's Psalm 120 through 134. Jewish pilgrims would sing these songs on their way up to Jerusalem. They had to ascend into Jerusalem because Jerusalem is built on a mountain, surrounded by mountains. So if you were coming from outside that region, you literally had to walk up to get to Jerusalem. And so somewhere along the journey, in their caravans with their clan and their families, 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 family, and the villages kind of all coming together three times a year to Jerusalem, they would uh, sing these songs. So you can imagine camping out alongside the river. Someone starts singing the first line of one of these songs. You know, of course, they're just words to us because their tunes have been lost. But they would have known their tunes. They would have known the harmonies and the melodies. And, uh, and they would have just started singing it all together, uh, these psalms, 120 through 134. So we've ascended to Jerusalem. And now we're in Jerusalem. If you could just still use your imagination one more time with me. We're in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. We've come a week early uh, to, to make the preparations, to be with family, to be with friends, to see people we haven't seen in a long time. And we're there in Jerusalem. And on a Sunday morning, the Sunday before the Passover, we start hearing this kind of murmur spreading through our section of Jerusalem. Start hearing some whispers. There's some commotion outside the city gate. So we go outside the city gate and we look and down one of the roads coming down the Mount of Olives is this massive parade. People lined up all up and down the side of the road. People kind of dancing in front and people dancing behind. And in the middle of it all is Jesus now, we've heard about Jesus because Jesus is this amazing rabbi who's gained some acclaim. There are also a lot of people who hate him, but we've heard of him. We've heard of the miracles that he's done. There's a commotion, and now people are starting to rush from inside Jerusalem, outside the city, to be a part of this parade, and we go too. Now, imagine with me what you're going to see in the Scripture today. From these two accounts of the same story is three distinct groups of people lined up and participating in this event, this triumphal entry. The first group is the Pharisees. Second group is just the crowd, the mass, the throng of people. And the third group is the disciples. And I want you to use your imagination and examine this season and this moment of your life to see which one of these groups you identify with the most. Which one describes you in this moment? Luke chapter 19, verse 28. And when he, that's Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet set. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. 
And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So the Pharisees, they're our first group of people. They're upset by what is happening. They say to Jesus, how could you let this, you know, how could you let them be saying these things about you? Because what Jesus is doing is very bold. He's letting people call him the coming king who comes in the name of the Lord. He, he, he rides in on a colt of a donkey, which was a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 in the Old Testament about a, a king who would come into Jerusalem riding the colt of a donkey. And people are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means praise God because he saves. So Jesus is letting them do all this, parading, throwing the cloaks on the ground, which was a, a high sign of honor saying, you are so high and lifted up that you don't even need to touch the dirt on the ground. Walk on our coats. Essentially, when you combine all those things, what Jesus is allowing to be said about him is he is the prophesied king of Israel or the Messiah. Now the Pharisees, they didn't like that because the Pharisees, they were experts in the law and they were experts in the religious law. But the Pharisees were more than just a group of religious people. They, they really functioned more like a political party would in our day. And they had an incredible amount of influence. They lived with an impeccable moral precision. You know anybody like that? You have friends or family members who are like that. They, they just never make any wrong decisions. They never have to apologize because they, they just get it right every time. And they're always, you just always feel condemned like when you're around them because you don't get it right every time. And even if they don't say anything, you can tell what they're thinking. That was the Pharisees. They lived with this incredible moral precision. They were experts in the law. But they weren't the ruling party in Israel. They didn't really have the kind of governmental power. They were the people's party. They were lay people. They were not the chief priests who lived in Jerusalem. You could find Pharisees anywhere in Israel, in all synagogues, all over the place. They were the people's party. And they loved being the people's party because it gave them this special place. You remember Rome ruled the world at the time and Israel was no different and so what Rome would do was they would send a few of their governors and a few bands of soldiers to these conquered territories, but they would really trust the local people to govern themselves. And so the Pharisees have, had carved out a nice niche for themselves, uh, kind of as a go-between, between the people, the regular people like you and, and me, and the people in power. They were the, the brokers, the, the gatekeepers. And so it allowed them to continue to be righteous live with moral precision, but it also gave them a tremendous amount of influence and power. And Jesus is coming. He's coming as a prophesied king. He has all of these people who are receiving him as king. And what is the Roman Empire going to say? The Roman Empire is going to say, no, 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 no. Caesar is king and Rome doesn't like it when would-be kings come into their territories. And so the Pharisees, what they are thinking is, 
This is going to, to stir things up. This is not status quo. And we like status quo because we get to be righteous and powerful. And they didn't want Jesus ruining it for them. Because they had this selfish ambition. You know, what's sad is if you would ask the Pharisees what they wanted most in life, they would have said something very similar to the things that Jesus said. They wanted the kingdom of God to come on earth. They wanted God's will done on earth as it was in heaven. They wanted the rule and reign of God to be over the whole earth. Those are the same things that Jesus said. But their selfish ambition made them opponents of Jesus instead of allies. I want you to take your Bible and I want you to turn to James chapter 3. Because when I read about the Pharisees, I'm always thinking, how did the Pharisees get to a place where they're these righteous people? Good people, righteous people. And yet, by the end of this holy week, they're there with the crowd and with the chief priest wanting Jesus crucified. How could righteous people living with moral precision, get to the place where they would plot to kill a teacher? How did they get from point A to point Z? James chapter 3, verse 14, I think, lets us know not what was going on through their actions, but what was deep in their hearts. Verse 14, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast And be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. That's how you get to be... Uh, to move from being a person, a political party of righteousness, to justify to yourself plotting to have a man killed. Because when you have a seed of selfish ambition, there is nothing that you will not do. See, some of us, were like, well, I would never turn my back on Jesus. I would never be Judas. I would not even be Peter, the disciple who loved Jesus, but in a moment of weakness, three moments of weakness, pretended to not know Jesus. I would never do that. I would never turn my back on him. I love Jesus. He's done so much for me. I would never get to the place where, where I would harden my heart in such a way to walk away from all of it. But what the scripture says is if you and I, we allow selfish ambition to reside in us, What comes from selfish ambition and bitter jealousy is every vile practice. And if selfish ambition takes root in you and I, you will not like the fruit. That's what happened to Judas, I think. We don't get a lot of Judas's picture, so we can just take the information that we do have and try to read from the context. I think that Judas signed up to be a follower of Jesus there in the beginning of Jesus' ministry because he believed that Jesus could be the Messiah. But what Judas wanted from a Messiah and what Jesus would end up being were two different things. Because what Judas was thinking a Messiah would be is a king who would come into Jerusalem, throw out the Roman Empire, begin to kind of rule over all of Israel again, just like it happened in the Old Testament. And what do kings need? Kings need regional rulers. Kings need assistants. Kings need ambassadors. And Judas was the kind of person who had a lot of selfish ambition. We know that because later in in the story, he's stealing from the common money bag that the disciples would carry. 
he had that selfish ambition. And, and at some point when he realized the kind of he, Messiah that he wanted Jesus to be and the kind of Messiah that Jesus was going to be weren't the same thing, he thought, well, I just need to cut my losses. I need to cash it in, see what I can make of this situation for myself. And he knew the, known these chief priests and these Pharisees and these rulers had been looking for a private opportunity to arrest Jesus. And so he took his opportunity under the influence of Satan. I think because he had been eaten away with ambition for himself. Where is ambition living in me? Where is ambition living in you? Selfish ambition. Is it the, the words underneath your name on your business card? Is that where your selfish ambition lives? Does your selfish ambition live on the address that you're able to write down? Does your selfish ambition live in a circle of moms when everybody starts talking about their kids? You're able to lay down something on the table that shames the rest of their moms. Does your selfish ambition live in a circle of men going around going, what do you do? 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 do Does your selfish ambition live by what hangs on the wall by how educated and smart and how you've been rewarded and your trophies? Where does your selfish ambition live? Because most of us are good people and we know in our culture, even still in our culture, that people don't want to be around people who are totally self-centered. So what we do is we try to confine our ambition to just a few private areas of our life. We'll keep a face of humility because that's acceptable in our culture. But on the inside, in a few lanes of our life, selfish ambition lives and reigns. And what the scripture says is when that happens, every vile practice is possible for us. And that's how we can move from being people who should be allies of Jesus to opponents of Jesus, just like the Pharisees. I want you to turn to John chapter 12 to see the same story from a different angle. John chapter 12, or yeah, John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd had come to the feast, who had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Three times in these short verses, John mentions the crowd because the crowd was there on the triumphal entry. 
The scripture in these stories lets us know that there was a group coming with Jesus starting in Bethany, which was a village just outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus, just a, just a few, few days or, uh, before that, had raised Lazarus from the dead, a friend of his. You remember that story? Jesus uh, arrived too late and he had the sisters roll away the stone of their dead brother. And the sisters are saying... You know, what are you doing? No, he's been in there too long. This is no good. Nothing good can come from this. And, and Jesus just says, let the stone be rolled away. And he calls Lazarus out of the grave, out from the dead, and, and raises Lazarus from the dead. Well, the people of Bethany were there, and they saw that, and they heard that. And so now Jesus is coming into Jerusalem like a king. So the people of Bethany are there. Meanwhile, people in the city of Jerusalem have also heard that Jesus had done this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. And now they're hearing the commotion. They're seeing that it's Jesus coming into the city with this throng of people from Bethany. And so they come out to meet him. So you've got these two crowds kind of converging on the road into Jerusalem. They're waving their palm branches and they're dancing around and they're singing this song. But they're only coming, John chapter 12 tells us, because they had heard about the miracle. They weren't committed to Jesus. They were just interested in Jesus. The church is filled with people who are interested in Jesus. I was a youth pastor for a while, a long time ago. I was the world's worst youth pastor. Uh, So we can thank God and our teenagers are lucky that I'm not in charge of that area of ministry. But you you learn a few tips and, and tools of the trade when you do student ministry and you work with teenagers uh, and you learn that pizza draws a crowd. I don't know why it does, because you know, you're ordering cheap pizza because you want to be a good steward of the money of the church. So you end up ordering cheap pizza, but, uh, but, but it just brings out teenagers, which is crazy because if we went around and said, you know, do you like pizza? You know, most people would be like, yeah, it's okay. Only a few of us would really be like, you know, pizza is my thing. So pizza is kind of this thing that we're ambivalent about. But for a teenager coming to church, like pizza is the reason to get out of bed in the morning or to say no to something at night. And so we would have pizza. Anytime I felt like my pastor was looking at me like I wasn't doing a good enough job, I would just buy a bunch of pizza and kids would just come from all over the place. But what would happen was you'd have pizza one week, no pizza the next week, no pizza, no people. Because pizza can't sustain faith. It can draw a crowd because it's interesting, but it can't sustain faith. Now, churches really don't try that technique for adults because I don't think a pizza is getting you out of bed. So we do other things as churches. We feel this pressure to make the things that we talk about and be about at church interesting because Jesus apparently isn't drawing a crowd anymore. The Word of God is not enough anymore. So we talk about interesting things about like how to raise your kids and how to be a better mom and a better dad and how to be a better person, how to better have a better life and those kinds of things because those are interesting to people. How to be a better leader at work from biblical principles because those are interesting. Those draw crowds. But that just means we're interested and not committed. What's interesting is you see the progression of the crowd when you read the Gospel of Matthew, if you started with the triumphal entry and you read all the way through Jesus' crucifixion, you would notice the crowd over and over again. And I'm not going to have you turn there, but if you want to write these references down and listen to how the crowd transitions from this moment. They're with Jesus at this moment at the triumphal entry because Matthew chapter 21, verse 8 says that the crowd is spreading their cloaks for Jesus on the ground. Matthew chapter 21, verse 26 says... 
that the chief priests, those are the kind of the rulers of Jerusalem underneath the Roman Empire, they're afraid of the crowd. They don't want to go against the crowd. So the crowd has influence over the leaders at this point. Matthew chapter 22, verse 33, it says the crowd is astonished by Jesus' teaching. It doesn't mean that they are astonished in like a, a positive way. Like, oh, wow, this is amazing. I believe this. It doesn't mean that they were astonished in a negative way. It just is just a word that's out there, that they were just, they were just amazed. Matthew chapter 26, verse 47, it says, The crowd comes with the police of the temple to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew chapter 27, verse 20 says that the priests, those ruling priests, persuade the crowd to ask for the release of a murderer instead of the release of Jesus, an innocent man. And they do it. And then in Matthew chapter 27, verse 24, says the crowd wants Jesus crucified. So much so that the Roman ruler Pilate, who was as vicious and ruthless of a man who has ever lived, looked at this crowd and said, I don't think this is a good idea, and I'll wash my hands of this. The guilt is on you, the crowd. When just days before they were outside the city coming into Jerusalem, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. How do you get to a place like that? I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 7. See the words of Jesus. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So Jesus says that the many, the crowd, they go through the wide gate. But only a few people go through the narrow gate. Why is that? I think it's because if you go through the wide gate, you don't have to change your path. You can just stay on the same path that you are and the gate is wide enough to accommodate your path. But if you want to come through the narrow gate, then you have to adjust your trajectory. You have to adjust to the gate when the gate is narrow, but you don't have to change at all when the gate is wide. That's the thing with the crowd. They were out there shouting Hosanna and blessed is the king to Jesus because, yeah, they would like a Messiah too. Sure, they would like somebody to come in, gather up Israel, have a big war with the Roman Empire, have victory over the Roman Empire so that their own people can rule their own land again. Sure, yeah. And if it's going to happen through Jesus, then yeah, we're all about Jesus. So let's sing the songs and let's do the dances. But as the week progresses, they realize that the kind of king and Messiah that Jesus is going to be is not the kind that they were thinking about. And so they don't change at all. Suddenly, they're just not interested in Jesus anymore. You see, the crowd never changed. They were for Jesus when they thought Jesus was for them. But when they had to adjust to Jesus and come through the narrow gate, they just kept walking in the same direction. 
See, that's the crowd. The crowd is interested, but the crowd is unwilling to change. And so if you're here this morning, and as long as we say things at church that fit with the worldview that you already have, you'll keep coming. But the moment that you read something in the Scripture that confronts that worldview, well then, something's got to go. Your worldview or the church, so what happens? The church goes because we don't change. That means we're in the crowd. We're going through the wide gate. Listen, if you don't ever have any moments of your life where you're confronted with truth and you have to repent and change, you can know that you are on the wide road to destruction. Because he is constantly pushing us through the narrow gate. See, we fall into this trap where we want to pick the end. And then we back up and we'll take whatever path gets us to that end. And if Jesus' Jesus's path gets us to the end that we have already picked, then praise God, it's a double blessing. We get what we want and we get Jesus too. You pick the end of the kind of success that you want. You pick the end of the kind of kids that you want. You pick the end of the kind of marriage you want. You want you pick the end of just the kind of life that you want. And you back it up and then you look at all the paths and you're like, well, Jesus' path will get me there, so I'll take that path. That means you're trying to be a leader, but Jesus has invited us to be followers. We don't get to pick the end. We don't get to say to God, this is how I want my life to end up. And if you can take me there, then I'm all in with you. No, we look at Jesus and look at what he's done for us and look at who he is. And we say, I'm all in with you. Wherever you're headed, that's my end. Whatever the end of the road is for you, Jesus, that's the end of the road for me. But the crowd, the crowd picks the end and then finds the path that's most convenient. And that's what they were doing when they were singing the songs and doing the dances. It just happened to be a moment where what they wanted and what Jesus wanted aligned. Now I want you to turn back to Luke chapter 19. So we have the Pharisees, we have the crowd. Now we're going to see the disciples. Chapter 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet set. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away, and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. Now we don't know if Jesus has prearranged this situation. He was well known in these villages right outside of Jerusalem. He had been there many times. And so maybe he had gone to a friend who had a a colt of a donkey and he had said, uh, arranged it, you know, can I borrow that? We don't know. Maybe the Holy Spirit empowered him and gave him the ability to to have supernatural knowledge, to just know that that young colt was going to be there. 
And this is what needed to be said for that cult to be released. We don't know. What we do know is the disciples didn't know if it was prearranged. They didn't know what was going on because Jesus had to tell them. If they ask you what you're doing, we'll tell them the Lord has need of it. Can you imagine being those two disciples? I mean, because essentially what Jesus is asking them to do is steal it. I mean, it's at least morally gray. And imagine, you're the other 10. You're like, oh, thank, thank you, Jesus, for not selecting me to this task. Sneak into their yard and take it. That's what it means to be a disciple. It means you embrace uncomfortable obedience. Because listen, if you are a disciple of Jesus, your whole life's going to be uncomfortable. Your whole life. Because God is doing something in you. He's sanctifying you. He's changing you on the inside and on the outside. He's rearranging all of your priorities. He's turning up to down and down to up. He's making the first last and the last first. He's in process with you. He's sanctifying you. He's conforming you to the image of his one and only son. So he's going to put you in situations that stretch you. Because no one gets sanctified through repeated ease. Just do the same easy things over and over and over again. You actually get further from Jesus than when you're right in the middle of those awkward situations in his name. And we're on a mission. Taking the name and the story of Jesus to the whole world. So listen, somebody's got to go to an unfamiliar and uncomfortable place. I remember... When I was 19, I went on a, a trip to India. I was on a small team there. We, we went in, in northern India from these uh, villages and these different villages. We were in one every night while we were there. And we would take turns preaching the gospel and meeting people and praying with people. And, and one of the nights that was my turn, we're in the van on the way to this village. And somebody who seemed to have authority and some you know, knowledge about the situation said, yeah, we think maybe this is the first time ever or the first time in a long time uh, that anybody has shared the gospel in this village. You know, a lot of the villages would have had churches and a large community of believers, but this one we're going to, we don't think there's anybody there who's a believer. Notice I'm 19 years old. I was not good at preaching to people who already believed in Jesus at that point, let alone somebody who had never heard of Jesus. Something, and if you mess that moment up, like they're messed up forever. I didn't like it. I didn't like that. I didn't like that moment. Just feeling the weight of that. I would have, I would have gladly chosen to be back in one of the other villages where there was a strong church and But if you follow Jesus, you gotta embrace uncomfortable obedience. So I don't know what situation he's gonna put you in this week. But when you get into that uncomfortable moment, you just remember what Jesus told these two disciples who went to grab that colt, the Lord 
the Lord. When you're in that moment of discomfort, choosing between the easy way out and the uncomfortable, you remember it is the Lord who has put you there. That he is the master and we are the subjects. That he is the king and we are the servants. He is the shepherd and we are the sheep. That I didn't invent this. I'm not the leader. I'm the follower. And if the master, if the Lord has put me in this moment, then I'm going to follow through in this moment. I'm not going to take the easy way out. And if the master, if the Lord, if the king has told me to do this, then 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he's going to give me everything I need for life and God. But disciples embrace uncomfortable obedience. And then look what happens. Look how the story ends. Verse 35. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And he rode along and they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. There they are singing their songs. The Pharisees are like, tell them to be quiet. And Jesus says, no, if they're quiet now, the stones are going to to cry out, somebody's got to praise me. And what Jesus is saying is it's the place of a disciple to offer excessive praise. It's not the rock's job. It's not nature's job. It's a disciple of Jesus's job to offer excessive praise. I mean, because when you read it, they're kind of caught up in it, aren't they? I mean, just picture yourself back there. They got these palm branches. Where did my palm branch go? Over here it is. They would do these palm branches because back in Leviticus, um, it was kind of prescribed anytime that they were celebrating, they would go and cut one of these palm branches down and they would wave them around. I got this one from a uh, place in my neighborhood last night at 1130. I was... If it looks familiar to you, maybe yours. I was thinking about what I was going to do if I got caught. I was going to say the Lord has need of it. Now, you grow men and women going over to bushes and cutting these things down and waving them around. Lined up and down the sides of the streets. Taking songs from the Old Testament and singing them towards a man right then, right there in front of them. Grown men dancing around in front and behind. They took their, their jackets off, and this is this is not 2011 or 12, 13, <laughs> 2013, where you have five jackets in your closet right now. I mean, they maybe had one, maybe two, and they took their coats off and they laid them on the ground so that an animal could walk on top of them. They're kind of caught up in it, aren't they? 
I was offering, I was thinking, what would I have to offer if I were there that day? What would I have done? Would I have been one of the disciples who found a tree with a branch and went and cut it down, one for me, and waved it all around, lost in the moment of praise? Would I have been one to take my coat off gladly to lay it in front of the king? Would I have, with a loud voice, it said, as a grown man, sophisticated man, who owns things and has things and does things, would I have shouted at the top of my lungs, Hosanna, Hosanna, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know what I would have done. I may have stood in the back with it, like just right here, so that it looked like I was participating if anybody was looking. But if anybody was judging, then I would get judged a little bit less because I kind of held it together. What I have just walked along the parade, what I have sung, but not at the top of my lungs, where I've walked quickly with a beat in my steps, but not really in a way that you could call it dancing. What would I have done? What would you have done? Would you have pulled your hands out of your pocket? Would you have unclenched from down here? Would you have let go of the hand of the beloved next to you because you hold on to it because you think if you let go of it, you're going to lift your hand up in the air? And that's not really normal. So I'm going to hold on to you so I don't do this. What would you have done? I mean, think about what you do here. Could you describe what you do here at Bayou City Fellowship as excessive praise? And you're like, well, it's public. That's fine. Where do you offer excessive praise? At home when no one is there? In your car when no one can see you? Where is it that you offer excessive gratitude? You're like, well, I'm really not that kind of person. Sure you are. I guarantee you some of you were so thrilled with the outcome of your NCAA bracket so far that you pumped your fist when no one was looking. Some of you give a hallelujah when you find a good parking spot, but have never uttered those words among believers. I've seen grown men hug each other when someone scores a touchdown. When you got a promotion last time, there's somebody in here who went to the parking lot and did a little dance. You go to a wedding and people are cutting loose that you didn't know had any rhythm. And I guarantee you, if you won the lottery, your whole neighborhood would know from the shouts that were coming from your house. 
Listen, you already won the lottery. Because Jesus, he rode that donkey into the city of God, into Zion. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth all week long until Thursday night. And on Thursday night, he had one last supper, the holy Passover meal with his 12 disciples. They walk outside the city of Jerusalem and back up the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. And a crowd comes with lanterns and torches and weapons. And they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus, men, not hiding in the back of the garden, not trying to get the other disciples to cover for him while he escapes. No, Jesus, he steps to the crowd and says, I am he. And the Bible says that when the the force of those words came out of his mouth, the whole mob that came for him fell down on their rear ends, that Jesus let himself be arrested and then he let himself be beaten and tortured and tried and humiliated and mocked on and spit on. And then he hung his body on the cross. And the king of the kingdom invited you in You already won the lottery. So pull your hands out of your pockets and you lift them to the sky and you throw your head back and you offer excessive gratitude. Because like the disciples... They shouted in a loud voice because of all that they had seen. If you got invited to church today, I'm sorry. I don't know what's the matter with me today. (laughs) But if you're a guest here today and you're like, what? 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 We're not talking about religion. Nobody is, is here is interested in, interested in replicating something that was handed down to us. What we speak of today is what we know. What we have read, yes. What we have experienced, yes. We've won the lottery because Jesus came into Jerusalem and his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. So in the spirit of that, we're going to take the Lord's Supper this morning. So if those who are helping us with that would come and take their places. Just a second, you're going to stand up and you're going to uh, come and rip off a piece of the bread. And when you rip it off, you're going to hear somebody say, this is the body of Jesus broken for you. And you're going to dip it into the cup and you're going to hear someone say, the blood of Jesus shed for you. And when you receive it and the quietness of your own soul, offer excessive praise. When you receive it, 
you remember what it cost Jesus to offer it to you. If you this morning realize that you're in one of those other crowds, you're in the crowd, you're just interested and so you came or you're interested or your, your path and goals seem to be aligning with Jesus right now and so you're kind of in a religious moment or maybe you realize that you're actually are working against Jesus because of the selfish ambition in your heart but you wanna be a disciple today. The way you become a disciple is not by acting like a disciple. The way you become a disciple is by being saved and so you can give your life to Jesus today by just calling out to him in faith and he will receive you and he will set you on the path of life. Father, we thank you for sending your one and only son. We thank you for the power that remains in these stories. And I pray that power would meet us in these moments. So we praise you, Jesus, as we remember your body and we remember your blood. We're grateful and we offer our gratitude in Jesus' name.